I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Get your grill prepped and ready. Summer is just around the corner. If you got a taste for burgers, steaks, chops, or chicken, you can't go wrong hitting up the barbecue. But how often do you stop to think about where that meat came from? Is it grass-fed? What about free range? And what does all of that mean? Later this hour, we'll talk with local farmers, processors, and entrepreneurs about how they get it done, from the farm all the way to the table. But first, Asian American students make up one of the fastest growing groups on campus at Vanderbilt. In fact, students who identify as Asian make up nearly one-fifth of the total student body. But many of those students feel the university has fallen short when it comes to making them feel accepted and valued. I'm joined now by one Vanderbilt student who's been advocating to change that. Rohit Carteria, welcome to This is Nashville. Um, hi, it's so nice to be here, um, and I'm excited to talk about all things Asian American advocacy at Vanderbilt with you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So you are a rising junior. What has your experience been like at Vanderbilt so far? It's been honestly super crazy from starting college in the middle of the pandemic to um, getting a full, almost full college experience this last school year as a sophomore. I feel like I've seen so much of um, Vanderbilt and so many people at Vanderbilt that I've um, gotten to talk to. It's been absolutely wild. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned, Asian Americans are an increasingly a larger portion of the Vanderbilt population. And a lot of us feel that there is a lot more that could be done. And that has led um, some students last year and now going into this year, a lot of students pushing for an Asian American studies program. And this is a program that's been really um, awesome to have support from faculty on to be pushing for these stories to be heard in the classroom. WPLN education reporter Juliana Kim is also with us. Her story is on her story on this just aired this morning on Morning Edition. Juju, thanks for being here. Hello. How's it going? It's good. I'm excited to hear the rest of uh, this Nashville episode. I was going to go eat a burger for lunch. So <laughs> um, wondering if this episode will make me want to keep eating my burger afterwards. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully you wait for me before you eat that burger. But let me ask you this. You know, you interviewed Rohit and many other AAPI students about their experience at Vanderbilt. What have you been hearing? Yeah. So one of the things I've heard across the board is that, as Rohit was saying, it's just long overdue for the university to adapt to its changing student demographic, right? As you said, Asian Americans are one of the fastest growing groups on campus, but a lot of them still struggle to feel belonged. And I just want to note the main reason they've been able to manage and still thrive is because of one another. And I think that's important because students like Rohit rely on their close-knit Asian community to organize and do things like celebrate their heritage and also educate one another on stereotypes and microaggressions. And I think what I've heard across the board is that they just want to see the university share some of those responsibilities. Now, I understand that part of the issue is just the lack of classes available. The university offers African-American studies and Latino studies. Why not Asian-American studies? Mm -hmm. So 
Truth is, this isn't a Vanderbilt-specific phenomenon. And if you bear with me, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here. Okay. Asian American studies first came about in the 1960s as part of this larger student push for more classes on the histories of people of color. And what we've seen is that, you know, 50 years later, still only a handful of universities actually offer Asian American studies. And my personal theory is that it stems from two long misconceptions about Asian Americans. One is that we're this model minority, right? All Asian Americans are high achieving and problem free. And along those same lines, there's this misconception that we're all the same. You know, we have this single monolith experience. Both are just not true. Asian Americans have the biggest wealth gap in the U.S. And the term actually refers to people over 20 in over 20 countries. Hmm. But I think the danger of these stereotypes is that they erase Asian American experiences of racism and also undermine our needs. And we're seeing that trickle effect on college campuses. Now, Juju, what classes are available right now for Asian American studies at Vanderbilt? Mm-hmm. So this upcoming fall, the school is going to be offering seven Asian American re- uh, related courses, I believe. And they're going to touch upon a range of topics from the Cold War to Asian American social movements to environmental inequality. Um Something really cool that I want to shout out is that there's this real concerted effort for this program to be very uh, intersectional. uh, Professor Ben Tran, who's kind of been also helped leading the front to form this department, taught a course last semester exploring the relationship between Asian and African-Americans, with the goal being that his classes aren't just filled with Asian-American students. So that's really exciting to see. Now, Rohit, you co-founded a group called the Asian American Advocacy Project. What's the goal? Yeah, so our big goal is, of course, one of the larger things is the Asian American Studies um, program at Vanderbilt. But along those lines, our main objective is to just create a lot of structural change at Vanderbilt to make Asian American students feel as welcome as possible. And so this includes getting more Asian American counselors at the University Counseling Center. Um, This includes the push for a um, major and minor program. And this even includes things like getting um, more of um, the Asian American restaurants surrounding um, Vanderbilt's campus to be a part of Vanderbilt's off-campus meal plan called the Taste of Nashville, where students can use meal money from their meal plan to um, buy meals from these restaurants. And so really from every angle, we're trying to just push these little changes one by one so that Asian Americans really do feel as included as possible and that they feel that Vanderbilt wants to truly be investing in their futures. How has the development of the project been going? It's been a roller coaster to say the least. Mm. Um, my other co-director, um, Angela, is also a rising junior. And so it's been a lot of trial and error trying to figure out what structure works best for our organization. Um, but overall, the f- support we've gotten from faculty has been amazing. And I really have so much hope for this next school year and for years to come that the changes that are going to be seen on Vanderbilt's campus are going to be ones to remember for sure. Tell me, what would it mean to you to have this program? Oh, honestly, I 
I think happy is just the best word I can use to describe it. Right now, I'm a minoring in South Asian language and culture, but I'm hoping that with the development of an Asian American studies program, that I will be able to switch minors by the time I graduate and to be able to just learn about my own history, to learn about what it means to be Asian and American simultaneously, I think is just is going to make me really happy and really grateful too. What about the for the rest of the school? I mean, these classes aren't just for AAPI students themselves, right? Right, definitely not. I think a large part of this also is that, you know, as a university, Vanderbilt is here to educate the next generation of people, not just in the United States, but um, in the world. And if these courses, you know, become popular enough and we can help non-Asian American students take it, take these courses, then that opens up a whole new range of people who know about these issues, who can go into whatever field that they're going into after college to help um, view the world in a more holistic way and to be able to advocate for solutions or to just do their work with this idea in mind, with a fuller idea in mind of how the world works and what different people's experiences look like. Juju, what have other students said about what this program would mean to them? Mm-hmm. Um, so the students I talked to hope that through more classes, as Rohit was saying, right, they're going to feel more valued and respected by the administration, faculty, other students. I think the best way one student described it to me is that they just want to take up more space on campus, you know, that through the course catalog, you know, uh, through student events, like they're going to see, uh, you know, the size of their student, kind of how much of the student body that they represent being reflected in these other spaces and in these other ways. Um, And again, just going to harp on Rohit's point, you know, I think the other thing and maybe the more important part is that, you know, Asian Americans are just going to have a chance to better understand what it means to be Asian American, right? A lot of students grow up uh, not learning about this history. You know, Asian American historical figures and events are often left out in traditional K through uh, 12 history classes. Um, there is a separate push to try to make the, uh, for, for that to be a little more inclusive, but that's a whole other story. Um, and I think though that exposure and education is just going to better equip them you know, not only to navigate college, but as Rohit was saying, just life, right? Mm -hmm. Elections and their career and their family. Um, You know, I kind of, I want to point out, yes, it's kind of, you know, at the most basic level, we're just talking about a few classes at a school. But for a lot of Asian American students, you know, this is going to be their first chance to learn how people who look like them have navigated life in America, how they've struggled, how they've triumphed. And, um, most importantly, what work there's left to do. Um, so that's, again, just exciting. Mm-hmm. Going forward, what would you like to see from the administration at Vandy, Rohit? Oh, honestly, I would like them to be more proactive about this stuff. I think it's might be cliche, but the students should not be the ones who have this onus on them to be doing this work. It should be something that administration knowing that you know asian american students constitute almost a fifth of their student body that this should be something on their minds that if they are in this business of education they should be making sure that all of their students are as best served as possible 
That is Rohit Kutaria. He is a rising junior at Vanderbilt and co-director of the Asian American Advocacy Project. He was joined by WPLN reporter Juliana Kim. Head out to WPLN.org to listen to her full story. Thank you both for being here. After the break, we're going to take a trip to a family farm out in Shelbyville to learn how one family works to raise and care for the animals we eat. This hour is all about meat. What do you like to cook on the grill? Do you have a favorite steak or barbecue joint in town? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. So you're at the grocery store shopping for the week. Hopefully you didn't wait till today to do your week's shopping. But okay, so you've hit the produce section. Now, unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan, it's time to figure out what meats you'll eat for the week. The choice may come down to quantity over quality. Local meat is expensive, but there's a reason for that. Today, we're talking all things meat from farm to table. Let's start on the farm. Crossing Creek's farm, to be exact. It's in Shelbyville, about an hour south of Nashville. It's a small family farm dedicated to regenerative practices and raising pasture-raised and grass-fed animals. Elizabeth Stewart cares for those animals every morning. That's the sound of us feeding the pigs this morning. We're welcoming uh, baby chicks this morning to the farm. They're going into our brooder room to stay nice and warm until they're big enough to go out into mobile coops in our pastures. And they're excited to be here. They're very loud. Um, We're getting ready to open up the gate and let the cattle into a new piece of pasture. Here they come. Elizabeth Stewart joins us now. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us on. Pleasure to have you. So we heard a little bit of your morning routine there, but what's a typical day like for you? Um, Absolutely. So we start early in the morning. My husband takes care of the majority of the of the chores. We're all involved in the entire farming process, um, whether that's uh, out in the field or that's bookkeeping or scheduling dates with hatcheries and processors. Um, it's a full day every day and no two days look exactly alike. <laughs> so it's something different. You can expect the unexpected, so to speak. Absolutely. It's never predictable here. <laughs> so it sounds like you and your family put a lot of care into this practice. What do these animals mean to you? Yeah. So um, 
Well, they mean a lot to us. Uh, we focus on regenerative agricultural practices. Uh, and so their part of um, our system is, is we're using the animals to help heal the land and the soil, as well as feed our community a really high quality proteins, whether that's our 100% grass-fed beef or pastured pork, chicken, eggs, or even duck eggs. It's all the animals have a, a part here in helping restore the land. So can I ask you, is it hard to raise them and then see them go? Or is it just like a natural process that you've learned to appreciate? Um, I'd say it's a mix of both. I never want it to be easy. We never want to be numb to uh, death, although it is a part of our world, all of our worlds. Um, but And we've spent a lot of time caring for them. And we have a lot of animals that are here with us long term, Um like our mama cows are here with us a long, long time. Um, and so we're attached to them. Um, but we also have such a great appreciation for what they do and how they help to feed us and our community. Do you try to refrain from naming them? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Our, our, our two sons have are been growing up here and they know if we're allowed to name it, it gets to stay longer. So um, there are some animals that are named that are with us longer. And then there's some that we just, we don't allow ourselves to attach to as much. Mm -hmm. So tell me, how'd you get your start in farming? Um, yeah, actually my parents were a big force in um, bringing us to this type of farming. Um, this We've been in this for about uh, 12 or 14 years now. Um, they were beginning to age and just starting to question their health as well as why uh, their generation was aging on so many prescriptions and just seemed um, less healthy. And so they started digging into their food. Why was red meat supposedly not healthy for us? Um, we've survived it on it as a human race for centuries, but why now is it not healthy? And so it led them down the path of regenerative agriculture and grass-fed beef. And so we started with beef. And um, once our eyes were open, my husband's eyes were, were open, we were all in. And so we started with beef and we all went in and have grown from there um, to produce pork and chicken as well that are organic-fed, soy and corn-free out on pasture 24-7. Have you and your family always been meat eaters? Um, no, actually, great question. So when we first started our health journey, we actually all went vegetarian, thinking that um, it really was the meat causing us to be sicker and needing more uh, medications in our bodies. And about after a year and a half, we found ourselves even sicker. Mm. Um, we we just weren't responding well to to being vegetarian. Some people do, and and that's fantastic. Um, but for us, we just were not responding well. And so that's where we dove back into, okay, so we clearly need this, but why, and why is it so, why is it so awful? Um, and so it really brought us back to how meat has been raised traditionally, how are our ancestors raising it and preparing it? So that, that switch from being a meat eater to a vegetarian, that just kind of informed how you all were going to go about, you know, raising the animals 
in your property? Absolutely, yeah. So it was um, less uh, less of conventional meat for us. It meant less conventional meat, not raising those animals in conventional um, methods, but to go more regenerative and organic with them and uh, producing a higher quality, not maybe necessarily needing as much meat in our diet, but just a higher quality of meat when it is in our diet. Dylan Fishbein from Caney Fork Farms in Carthage, Tennessee, is also with us. Dylan, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. So what got you into farming? Um, what got me into farming? Um, I met someone, is actually a, a meeting of someone in 2017 who basically taught me that I could be intentional about the way that I live my life. And previously, before then, had not been intentional about my diet, about the way I communicate, about the way I, you know, walk in the world. And after meeting this person, I kind of started to integrate intention into the different aspects of my life and felt really gravitated towards food. And then from there, really wanted to be where the food is being produced. What's the experience been like so far? Really transformational. Um, it's funny, I, I've been vegan very hardcore vegan for like five years and just recently since working on this farm started eating meat again um, and is about seeing the animals on the land being connected with the landscape and also yeah just questioning these like pop science myths you could call them about what health actually is and uh, meat is definitely part of a healthy diet just has to be the right kind of meat. More so getting your hands dirty than kind of going off of a BuzzFeed. Article. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So, but what makes Caney Fork Farms different from other farms that grow livestock? Yeah, um, it's funny, we're from the sound of it, very similar to Elizabeth's farm. Um, we're really intentional about the way we, we raise our animals. We use regenerative practices like Elizabeth. And um, yeah, you might've heard it, been called carbon farming or climate smart agriculture. This regenerative model is really about, you know, allowing the ecosystems on which we're farming to do their thing. And, um, you know, we use practices like uh, cover cropping our vegetable fields, keeping the soil covered and keeping organic matter in the soil. We use multi-species intensive rotational grazing, which is a fancy way of saying we use different species of animals and moving them systematically around the land. Mm -hmm. And they're allowed to, you know, express their freedom of their natural behaviors. They have plenty of room, they're cared for well, and they, through this movement, deposit their nutrition in the form of manure onto the land. And then we basically use that as a way to sequester and accrue carbon in the soil. Um, so we're all about building healthy soil, sequestering carbon, and in the process, raising really healthy, really high quality meats. So all of your animals are 100% grass fed, is that correct? That's not correct. So our, our beef and our lamb is 100% grass fed and finished. Um, our pigs, we have about 70 pigs. They are on pasture, they're pasture raised, but we do feed them a ration of grain. But what's really cool about our pigs is that we grow about 50% of the grain that we feed them uh, on our land. And then we're using their manure to um, you know, replenish the soils. So it's kind of a closed nutrient cycle mm -hmm. where we have the pigs, we're raising them on the food we're growing, and then we're using their nutrition to then grow more food. What benefits does it provide to have like your cattle on a 100% grass-fed diet? Oh, I mean, it's really, it's really beneficial to the land. Um, 
we basically these ruminants and these herds and flocks have co-evolved with these prairies in in this area in in this like the central of the u.s um and you know through that co-evolution they've developed this system where the animals eat the tallest highest quality grasses and then move and when they move they allow the grasses to regrow and through that regrowth and that photosynthesis the grasses are creating these huge root structures that are really have a high capacity to store carbon so it's really healthy for the land it's really healthy for the soil um, and yeah since we have so much land we're we're blessed to be able to grow these these animals in a way that is really uh, beneficial for their health as well if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking with farmers Elizabeth Stewart and Dylan Fishbein about how they raise the livestock we eat. So we know that a portion of our greenhouse gases come from agriculture. Cows in particular have an effect on this from their emission of methane and their grazing. What steps have you all taken to reduce the carbon footprint of meat production? Susan? Elizabeth? Pardon me. <laughs> no problem. My mom's name is Susan. Hey. Uh, so I responded immediately. Um, yeah. So again, just backing up what Dylan said, it's, we're very similar styles of farming. And so the, the goal with that is we're putting in, especially for cattle, we're putting in their natural diet. So cattle are herbivores. They have four stomachs or ruminants, like he said. Um, and so by not putting in um, excess amounts of grains, we have cut down on those gases that um, are supposedly, you know, coming from them. Um, and just to clarify what he was saying, pigs and chickens are omnivores, so they have to have grain. They cannot be 100% grass-fed. I think a lot of times that's confusing for the consumer and labels. They can be pasture-raised and they do eat some grass, but they need extra diet in them as well. Um, but being 100% grass-fed with the cattle is helping to cut down on those um, gas emissions. I'm not sure what else. Maybe Dylan has some more on that. Dylan? Yeah, it's... Um, we hear in, like, the media, and again, I'll say pop science, that cows are bad. They're, you know, big sources of methane emissions. And you also hear methane's 300 times more potent than CO2, and it's really scary. Um and that does exist, and these concentrated animal feeding operations, these CAFOs do exist, and this harmful style of animal agriculture does exist, but that is not the only thing that is happening here. Um, there are farms like Elizabeth and ours that, um, that are producing meat in a way that is actually, like I said, sequestering or accruing carbon into the soil. So it's actually, you know, potentially, there's an issue with scale right now, but at scale it could be, um, you know, a potentially impactful way to kind of re, um, remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Now, Elizabeth, Dylan mentioned pop science and you mentioned how people are confused by the labeling. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what type of education are consumers, what type of education do we need so we can make better, healthier choices for us when we're purchasing our meat, be it at a farm like yours or potentially going to the grocery store? What can we do? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big part of what we do. And I know that's what uh, Kenny Fork 
is doing as well uh, with their farm. Anytime you're buying directly from your local farmer, you're going to have an opportunity to ask all the questions and hopefully that farmer is going to be giving you full transparency. Um, and that's what we do in our farm store, which is directly here on the farm. You can come in and shop with us weekly and speak with us directly and ask those questions that are so confusing. The labels are, um, <laughs> are kind of ridiculous in the store. Um, just it's, it goes on and on and on. And, and there's, no regulations again used on them labeling. They can say what they want on them and and basically mm. claim whatever they want. Um, pasturize is meaning actually out on on pasture. Uh, for us, it means in rotational pasture, which is important for healing the soil and taking down parasite loads and creating a healthy environment for our animals every single day. Um, being cage-free simply means they took them out of the cages and yet they still live in these large, large chicken homes, uh, chicken houses with no, no sunshine, no grass, uh, no access to the outdoors. Typically, sometimes it's a little tiny yard that they could possibly go out in. Um, there's things like non-GMO and soy and corn-free and organic. And part of that, the consumers just got to dig in them dig in on their own and figure out what those terms mean and then find a farmer that is willing to answer those questions for you. You know, a lot of people are talking about reduced meat consumption as a means for increased public health and things is Dylan, you think that's something that's up to the individual to consider? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that diet and our food is such a sensitive topic. It's so mm. sensitive for people's health. It's really culturally sensitive. Um, and the food that someone chooses to eat and buy is really personal. So I think it's it's hard to ask people to change their diet. Um, however, I, I will say that consumers definitely need more support uh, at, you know, with labeling, with clear instructions and with clear um, you know, understanding of who and where and how their food is being produced. But I also want to say that, yes, individual action is super important, but this alternative agriculture movement is also a political movement. It's also a social movement, a cultural movement. And uh, individual action, yes, is important. And I think that if you have the capacity, the, the money, the time to change your diet to center more sustainably focused meats, I think you ought to. However, um, individual action is, is not it. It really is, is uh, like I said, it's political, it's social, it's cultural. There's a lot of institutions that need to change in order for you know, there to be real substantial change. So summer is just around the corner. I wonder, Dylan, what's your favorite meat dishes to cook or eat? Oh, nice. Um, I love ribs. Okay. <laughs> um, and... I love slow cooked things in the oven, like slow cooked roasts, like pot roast or pork shoulder or something like that. That's really awesome. Nice. Elizabeth, how about you? Uh, first thing that comes to mind, it's brisket. Mm. Uh, lovely brisket smoked outside in summer is delicious. And um, chicken thighs, man, our, our chicken thighs are outstanding barbecued on the grill. That is Elizabeth Stewart of Crossing Creeks Farm in Shelbyville. She was joined by Dylan Fishbein of Caney Fork Farms in Carthage. Thanks to you both for being with us today and making me very, very hungry. Thank you. Thank you. 
After the break, we'll move from the farming to the processing of our meat and eventually to the plate. Warm up your grills and tweet us your favorite recipes to cook at This Is Nashville. And hey, even if you're not a chef, I promise we still want to hear from you. What are your favorite meat dishes? At us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. When you're at your favorite restaurant, have you ever considered the many steps involved to bring those wonderful lamb chops to your plate? We've just been exploring how the animals are raised. Now let's talk about how they're processed for you to enjoy. To help us with that, I'd like to bring in my next guest, Steve Anderson from the new Anderson Meats and Processing in Hartsville. Steve, thanks for being here. Hello, appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's great to have you with us, my friend. So tell me, how long have you been in the livestock industry? Well, pretty much ever since I can remember. We owned livestock when I was a child. And then as a 12-year-old boy, I started working part-time at a local livestock market. And so I've been in all aspects of the cattle business from a child to through today. So, so you're pretty much an expert on cattle. Well, I don't There's a lot of people dispute that, but I guess some would say I am. <laughs> so tell me, when did you move into processing? How did that happen? Well, I've toyed with the idea for years, uh, just as a way to uh, maximize the profits and keep our farm operation going. We've got, you know, a commercial cow herd, and I always thought that if, you know, cattle feeders and processors could buy my beef and and haul it a thousand miles and feed it and process it and haul it back here and sell it to us and make a profit that I could do it here and make a profit. So I've been wanting to, you know, take our uh, farm meat to the farm to table and you know we've played with it for years, but it takes a lot of money to get an operation going. And we had big ideas and small pocketbooks. So. Mm-hmm. Well, take a minute with me and explain your operation to us. We have what's called a custom processing facility. We do uh, custom work for uh, people that's going to eat their own beef. Uh, like if you had an animal that you wanted to eat for you and your family, we would sl- we would harvest it. And uh, we do what's called the dryer aging. So the carcasses hang in a, in a climate control cooler for a couple of weeks. And then we uh, break it out and slice it up and package it. And we also do uh, USDA inspected uh, processing for those that want to retail their meat at farmers markets. And, you know, we actually do the processing for Candy Fork Farms and and a lot of other uh, farm to table operations in Middle Tennessee and Kentucky. What sets your shop apart from more conventional slaughterhouses? Well, we've got, number one, we're new. There hadn't been a lot of slaughter plants built in the state since, you know, since I can remember. There was a lot of older ones around. It's been remodeled, but, you know, we're new. Got state-of-the-art equipment. We've got uh, two uh, two chill boxes. Uh, most plants have one big cooler that your carcasses go in, and as you harvest, you keep adding to 
that cooler. And so the humidity and the temperature isn't as controlled, but we've got one box that, that we put all our hot carcasses in right after harvest. And it stays about 29 degrees in there with a, with a heavy air movement in it chills those carcasses down within 24 hours to about 35 or six degrees. And so when we move them into the aging cooler the next day, everything's already chilled out. And so the temperature fluctuation and humidity changes are, you know, very minimal to the rest of the carcasses in the cooler. So it enhances the aging process. Also, I hear there's kind of a move away from using the term slaughter. Why is that? Too many sensitive people, I guess. <laughs> you know, slaughter, harvest, you know, harvest, harvest, sound, harvest sounds better. I guess harvest is more politically correct, you know. People think of slaughter as, you know, some kind of abusive uh, murder type deal. And, you know, we, we put a big focus on, you know, handling the animals humanely from, you know, the time they come off the transport vehicle to the time you know we harvest them we've got everything in place you know non-slip floors and and all those good things and you know we try to you know there's a lot of guidelines especially on the usda side about how you can handle the animal you know it has access to water from arrival to harvest and so we we just try to treat everything with respect because they you know people find it hard to believe but i love animals mm-hmm. But it's, it's just my business. You know, it's really hard to harvest my own animals sometimes. I have to, sometimes I have to leave the harvest floor when they're harvesting my animals because, you know, I've, I've grown attached to some of them. Yeah, I understand that. And, you know, you mentioned it a little bit just now, but like thinking about the stress levels of animals that they go through. And what other steps do you all to make sure that the animals you work with have a healthy level to them? Well, you know, all, all our outside pen walls are skirted so they can't see outside movement. And so it makes them feel like they're in a safe environment. Uh, we try to, you know, if, if there's more than one animal to a group, we try to keep more than one to a pen. That way they, you know, animals are herd animals or cattle are herd animals and they like to be with others. And so we try to keep them pen close. And then, you know, we, we don't use, uh, uh, sticks we use a flag that's kind of a you know it's like a small stick with a piece of fabric on the end of it that you kind of just wave it and don't strike the animal so there's no bruising and, you know we have a, a pretty heavy duty uh, gate system that we designed that we can you know use one gate and shut it to crowd the animals a little closer and a little closer to the harvest tub and so we don't have to you know, try to get violent with them. We can just crowd them in with gates. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like your method has a lot more care and quality assurance measures involved. Does that transfer over to the taste the, of the meats you process? It can. A really stressed, upset animal at harvest can produce what the industry calls a dark cutter. There's just a, a lot of... Uh, hormones and different things on a highly stressed animal adrenaline and other things that's released into the the bloodstream and absorbed into the muscles that can cause a really dark texture to the meat and and the quality would be very poor and you know the, the 
processing industry refers to it as a dark cutter. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We've just been visiting with Steve Anderson, who runs a processing facility out in Hartsville. Now, we're moving to the table with a restaurateur who so sources his meat locally. Harant Arakelia... Harant Arakelian, excuse me, is the owner of Lyra, a Middle Tennessee restaurant in East Nashville. Harant, welcome to the show. Harant, you with us? Steve, Sorry, me... can you guys hear me? Ah, yes, we've got you, yeah. Harant. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Tell me. Why did you decide to start to serve local meat at your restaurant, Lyra? Um, you know, I think uh, to me, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, when you buy meat that was processed overseas and then, you know, frozen and shipped on a shipping container and you get it, you know, months later and then defrost it and, you know, cook it up. It, it just doesn't make a very tasty meal. I think if you can buy something that, you know, you get the chance to meet the person that has raised it or slaughtered it or, or, or harvested it, sorry. Um, and talk to them, you know, about, uh, you know, about their animals and, and see the animal and, you know, know that it's, it's been taken care of and, and uh, given to you in the best possible uh, manner. It just, it makes a much tastier plate. Tell me what, where do you get your meat from? Uh, we get it from a lot of different uh, sources. So, you know, a lot of uh, uh, local farms, um, you know, some up in Kentucky and, and around Tennessee and then some um, other, you know, more regional uh, farms. You know, one of the the hard things about um, buying strictly local sometimes is uh, getting enough of the product to have on your menu. Um, so we do kind of broaden our, our horizons a little bit there, but. What type of meats do you feature at Lyra? Um, we definitely feature lamb. You know, we're a, a Middle Eastern restaurant. And I think when you, you think Middle Eastern food, lamb is definitely high on that list. Um, you know, we do a lot of beef and a lot of chicken and, uh, you know, duck and, uh, you know, seafood and things like that. But uh, I would say lamb is probably our, our number one uh, protein that we have. I want to ask you about that. How are you utilizing the lamb? Do you use the entire animal? We do. Yeah. We, um, you know, buy a couple of, of lambs a week and, uh, receive them whole and, and, you know, with all of their, their parts. And then we get a chance to, uh, process them, you know, into the cuts that we're looking for, um, you know, for that week's menu. Uh, so, you know, it gives us a chance to use, all the fancy bits like the chops and the legs and then all of the, you know, the bits that, that people uh, aren't as familiar with, you know, like the, the liver and the kidney fat and, and things like that. And uh, mm. gives you a nice respect for the animal. Now, how have you seen the farm to table movement grow here in Nashville? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's tremendous how much it's growing. And I've been cooking in Nashville for about 20 years. And, um, it, it, you know, seeing that um, the consumer is uh, excited and, and willing to support restaurants that 
you go the extra mile to buy something that is uh, very well and locally raised, you know, it's usually a little bit more expensive and, uh, you know, seeing that people are, are excited to be a part of that and be able to support restaurants that do that. It's, it's just fantastic. Do you all make shawarma? It's a personal question. Uh, we changed the menu a lot. So we have had shawarma on the menu before. Um, you know, we, we don't do the like super traditional uh, Middle Eastern uh, food. We kind of take those traditional spices and kind of put our own little, little spin on it. So we'll do like a shawarma spiced, okay. uh, you know, lamb ribs and things like that. I'm, so. to- I'm totally going to come by. That was okay. that was Harant Araklian, and he was on, on with Steve Anderson. Thank you both for joining us today. All right, so it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean. Today, I'm hitting up Smoke Signals Barbecue Food Truck. What's up, everybody? I'm Sean Harmon with Smoke Signals Barbecue. First worry of the day is whether or not the truck gonna start. Every single time. Every time. Every time. Every time. And then now, it's figuring out what's going on with it. Well, yeah, figuring out what's going on with it. So today, I guess the battery had died or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So regardless of the actual doing business, that's one of the downsides of a food truck, man, is mechanically you got to get there before you can do business sometimes it don't work out how much do you spend on truck maintenance a year yeah oh man i'm ashamed to admit <laughs> in the range of uh 10 20 grand wow that's a, a lot it is it is because these things don't have small problems mm. how long you been doing this man i've been barbecuing all my life i pretty much uh it's kind of a family thing you from Nashville? Nah, Paris, Tennessee. All my family's in Chicago. Okay. Yep. How long you been here? Oh uh, man, I came to MTSU in 2001, 2002. Okay. Yeah, and just came down into Nashville after that. I never left. What do you like so much about it here around here? Uh, economically, it's a place to be. Socially, and we're a little behind the times, but elaborate a little further. Old Nashville was much more fun than the Nashville of today. Like, it's too touristy for the local. It's way too touristy. Take this truck this long to get warmed up. Man. Now, how'd you learn barbecue? I come from a family of men that cook. When our family gets together, the men do the cooking. It's kind of like a thing in my family, like, you know, and if you're one of the men that, that actually cooks, it's looked at as one of the most manly, macho things possible that you can feed yourself. Uh-huh. So as a kid, as a child, if you, you know, big dogs in the yard, the kids on the porch. So if you want to be a big dog, you got to have some sort of relevance. You got to be able to like clean off the grill or chop wood or keep the surface clean or do something like that. And and my family, like, everybody would come down to my hometown of Paris for celebrations. And so whenever my uncles came down, the first thing they would do was pull out the grills. And so I just remember, like, as a kid, getting off the school bus, smelling the grill, being like, oh, man, fam in town from Chicago, it's going down. As an adult, the smell of that, it, it gives me peace. Mm. Because it takes me back to a time that I won't see again. Mm. And that's kind of how all this started. I lost two of my closest friends 
about 12 years ago and one of them was a barbecue aficionado. We're both competitive people. And so we used to compete in the backyard. And so when he passed away, I found myself out there a lot of times making barbecue that I didn't have the appetite to eat. And so, you know, I started giving it away. There came a day I got tired of giving it away. I said, I'm not doing it anymore. And people just started asking and asking and asking and asking. Well, finally one day I said, you know what, okay, cool. I'll do it. And I set up a concession stand at Wilson Central High School for a soccer game. And, and I never looked back. So what's, how many hours do you work in an average day? Ooh, uh, man, I try not to think about it. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I try not to think about it because when I when I sit down, I may, uh, you know, start watching a basketball game. But me taking my mind off of whatever is on to watch the ball game is going to open my mind up for whatever I forgot. Mm-hmm. Like I'll fall asleep and I ran out of charcoal. And my smoker has gotten down to embers, meaning it's not going to fire up a piece of wood. Man, I got to then go find more charcoal. And sometimes it's 2 o'clock in the morning and it's impossible. So I have to basically make charcoal. <laughs> make it? Yeah. I'm sifting through ashes trying to find lumps. Yeah. That are still enough wood to them. Because that's all charcoal is, is burned down wood. You remember that old show, How It's Made? Yeah. I remember seeing how they made charcoal. That's how I found out. <laughs> that's, honestly, that's how I found out. Word. I didn't know. I love that show. All right, who's next? Hey, can I get the barbecue nachos and the fries? Pork or chicken? Uh, pork. Yeah, uh, and the barbecue fries. Pork fried chicken? Yeah, yeah pork. All right, let's start it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. You won't want to miss our lineup next week. Monday, we'll visit with family members of people killed by police. What resources are available to them? Then Tuesday, after the recent racist mass shooting in Buffalo, we'll explore the link between hateful rhetoric from our leaders and tragic acts of violence. After that, we've got our sister station WNXP's Artist of the Month, The New Respects, Bucket Lists, and Moonshine. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our news director, Emily Siner, and our theme musicians, LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>